objection to the rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Friday, June 17th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, June 19th, 2022. Happy Juneteenth, everybody. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, lady? All righty. I'm doing all right. It is very hot uh, out here. I don't know if it's hot where you are, but... um... It seems to be hot in most of the places on the planet right now. So, uh, yeah, yeah, trying to stay cool and calm. And, okay. Uh, yeah. yeah, how about you? Yeah. yeah, it's hot everywhere but Southern California. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, and sunny for me over here. Bitch. <laughs> I know, right? Don't hate the player. Hate the game. Uh-huh. But, um. Excellent. We're doing all right. Getting ready for a summer solstice to roll up on us. I'm excited about yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And Father's Day. Everything yes. is happening. Right? June Happy Teens, Father's Day. Right. It's a celebratory time in the world. So we hope you yeah. are enjoying life where you are. Yeah. All right. So on today's episode for local news, we'll be talking about an investigation into a developer's illegal use of an architect stamp to get approval to build. Our national news story is about floor sealing, mistakenly served as milk to students in an Alaskan school district. In world news, we'll be talking about the Maasai people being forcibly evicted from their land in Tanzania. And our good news story is about a report that 30% less plastic usage. um, Pollution. (laughs) And for good news, we have a report about 30% less pollution Plastic pollution. Dude, a report about 30% less plastic pollution in Australia um, being the new normal because of public awareness work over the last few years. Yes. On the, on the coastline specifically, but yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, work with us, y'all. Yeah. All right, we're going to go ahead <laughs> hop in today's episode. Emily, you're up with the local news. Uh, this story comes from a June 13th New York Times article by Matthew Hoag, Hoag, titled, The Hotel is 642 feet tall. Its architect says he never saw the plans. An architect lent his license to a New York City developer to approve buildings he didn't design, according to an investigation by the New York Times. The article explains, quote, amid the glittering geometric towers that dot the Manhattan skyline, The hotel on 11th Avenue in Hudson Yards was designed to stand out. At 642 feet tall, the building soars above the Hudson River, featuring uh, jagged sets of floor-to-ceiling windows that shimmer in the sun. To all outward appearances, Warren L. Schiffman, who is in his mid-80s and retired, was the architect of record on the project. His professional seal and signature were stamped on its design and those of two other large-scale projects in New York City a hotel near LaGuardia Airport, and dual high-rise residences in Queens. All share the same developer, Mark's Development Group. Mr. Schiffman said he had no active role in those projects, a statement that raises questions about whether the buildings were approved for construction without the oversight and involvement of a registered architect, a requirement in New York State to ensure that buildings are properly designed and do not pose a safety risk. A document obtained by the New York Times shows Mr. Schiffman's Schiffman's credentials were used to fake his approval of building designs that he did not review. The document, a four-page contract addressed to Mr. Schiffman on on company letterhead, shows that when Mr. Schiffman retired in 2016 from Mark's development group, 
He signed an eight-point agreement with its chief executive, David Marks, detailing how the company's design firm, DSM Design Group, could continue to use his seal of approval even though he no longer worked there. Developers can spend several millions of dollars on architect fees for big projects. In exchange for the use of the seal, however, Mr. Schiffman received quarterly payments from the developer that were substantially lower than the norm. The contract was signed. The contract was signed just before the Marks Development Group embarked on three large developments in New York City, including its highest-profile project to date, the Hudson Yards Hotel. It called for Mr. Schiffman to provide your architectural stamp and signature to the DSM Design Group when requested, and to make best efforts to respond within 48 hours of any request for such service. Mr. Schiffman said in an interview he was never asked to review any building plans. Building professionals in New York City said that the allegations involving Mr. Schiffman were highly unusual. Oh my goodness gracious, that's a new one, said Stephen Zarinsky, the the co-chairman of the Building Codes Committee at the New York chapter of the American Institute of Architects. Now what's going to happen with these buildings? Who's watching the store? Officials at the city's Department of Buildings said they did not find any structural defects on the plans for the Hudson Yards Hotel, which is still under construction. Department records show that it reviewed the plans five times between 2018 and 2020 when they were ultimately approved. The hotel near LaGuardia LaGuardia was completed in 2019, while the high-rise residences in Queens have not been approved yet. The department barred Mr. Schiffman from filing building plans in December, spokesman said, after it learned that someone may have fraudulently re-registered him with the state and filed plans without his knowledge. The spokesman declined to elaborate. Uh, Quote, as part of an investigation by the state's Department of Education, which oversees professional licensing, Mr. Schiffman admitted that he had practiced architecture when he was not authorized to do so. Under state law, the unauthorized practice of architecture can include practicing without a license or permitting, aiding, or abetting an unlicensed person to perform activities requiring a license. The Department of Education Board of Regents accepted Mr. Schiffman's forfeiture of his license at a meeting in May. In an interview with the Times, Mr. Schiffman said he gave up his license because of his age and denied that he had admitted to state investigators that he had practiced the profession when he was not authorized to do so. He also denied that he had had an agreement with Mark's development group, though he later acknowledged in the same interview that he had the contract in his possession, read aloud several lines from it, and conceded he he still received payments from the developer. Yeah, I still get quarterly payments, Mr. Schiffman said. He owed me money for years. I stopped practicing five years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Quote, I stopped practicing five years ago, and if anyone says I was, they are lying through their teeth, said Mr. Schiffman. Mr. Marsh did not return numerous calls and emails seeking comment. He has been a developer for more than 30 years, according to his online biography, and owns several other companies, including a construction firm and the design firm that employed Mr. Schiffman. Marsh Development Group has developed more than 4 million square feet of real estate including a Marriott Courtyard Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. And the construction firm owned by Mr. Marks, Atria Builders, has built more than 40 projects, according to the company's websites. Mr. Marks's companies have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in recent years lobbying city officials over their projects, city records show. Over recent months, Marks Developing Group removed Mr. Schiffman's name from several of its projects and alerted the city's Department of Buildings that another licensed professional had replaced him. In the world of architecture, a professional seal is tantamount to a sworn oath by the architect that the work meets the highest professional standards of safety and integrity. 
the Office of the Professions, a division of the state's education department that oversees licensed professions, likens it to giving, giving expert testimony in a court of law. While it is not uncommon for lower-level architects and firms to work on projects that ultimately bear the seal of the group's senior architect, that practice is not done without the senior architect's knowledge and supervision. And while architects draft the designs, other licensed professionals, such as engineers, are also involved to ensure buildings are structurally sound. In New York City, there is another layer of oversight, too. The Department of Buildings reviews construction plans before work begins to make sure they adhere to local building codes and zoning rules. State licensing rules warn architects that it would be unprofessional contact, uh, conduct to affix their seal to documents that they had not created or thoroughly reviewed. And it could be considered a class E felony if a licensed professional helped an unlicensed person to practice a profession or try to fraudulently sell a license, the state says. Registered architects and other licensed building professionals are, are occasionally accused of wrongdoing. In one of the most prominent cases, a building designer near Albany, New York, Paul J. Newman, was accused of practicing architecture without a license, drafting building plans over many years for buildings, including residential homes, a community for older residents, and a jewelry store. He served about two years in state prison and was released in 2019. In that case, charges were brought by the New York State Attorney General's Office, which labeled the case Operation Vandalay Industries, a tongue-in-cheek reference to George Costanza, the Seinfeld character who pretended to be an architect and invented a job at the non-existent Vandalay Industries. Uh, quote, last summer, Mr. Schiffman's name appeared on documents for another Marks Development Group project, side-by-side -side residential towers in the Flushing area of Queens. They would be around the block from a nursing center owned by the same developer. Mr. Schiffman said he was baffled as to how someone could have used his seal, which he said has been at his home in Long Island since he retired. Uh, nowadays, however, an architect's seal and signature can be applied digitally. And that is my local story for the week. Um, pretty wild stuff here <laughs> on many angles. Um, Reese, I, I don't know, I've made, it's probably been a while since we talked about it on the show. I actually studied architecture in undergrad and worked a little bit in, uh, for a few years in architecture firms in the city. So stories like this are always like, whoa <laughs> right it seems so unsafe spooky yeah i mean if if they can get by doing things like this like imagine what else they can get by with I know. you know in regards to building codes and stuff like that yeah no seriously and it's like dang like and you know like it's it's okay like a bunch of engineers and then the building departments looked at the stuff too but then it's like but like who like made these drawings right did they have any idea what they were doing are these things going to be structurally sound? Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I know. It's Jeez. pretty spooky stuff. Yeah. It is. And it's just like, you know, the last time we really talked about architecture issues in New York was when they had that big fire at the um, NYCHA buildings in the Bronx. Oh. I don't know if you oh. were recording with I'm, me and Jasmine. I might have missed that. Yeah. Well, that story, we covered it because all those people, you know, um, it was, I don't know, it was like 30 or something people were displaced. Mm -hmm. And when they found out it, the building's fire codes weren't up to par, they were yeah. built that way. And there was a lot of talk about, you know, a lot of these NYCHA buildings and other buildings like being unregulated based mm -hmm. on the time when they had to apply for stuff. It sounds mm -hmm. like this, you know, I don't know how related, but it seems like, you know, if developers can get by with mm -hmm. <laughs> by not yeah. having like legitimate um 
you know, whatever legitimate documentation or uh, regulations that they have to follow, they, a lot of people's safety, including the people who are building these buildings, right? Not just the people who will mm-hmm. occupy them. Um, it's just really unsafe and unfair that that's able to yeah. happen. I mean, you've followed a paper trail. I'm sure that's why or how, yeah, agreed. I guess. Yeah. There's just a lot of greed too, right? Like they could have just hired an architect to do it or pay, you know, got someone to actually review it, but they didn't want to pay the, for that, you know, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It does remind me of that story about the fire in the Bronx, because, you know, when we discussed that a lot that came out was about things not being up to code, people making like repeated complaints and then issues were not fixed. So, yeah, like this story to me just shows once again what happens when the motivation for everything is money and the incentives for everything is money and how much money you can make, how much money you can um, save by cutting corners. And it's things that could, you know, turn out to be deadly. So, yeah, I hope they get to the bottom of this and there's some kind of way for them to like root it out because yeah like you don't anything having to do with our architecture engineering all of that like those making mistakes in any of those areas can have such massively like deadly and dangerous consequences it's really not a joke like it's not something to play around with at all And at the end of the day, like you're doing all of this just to not spend the money. It's never worth it. Like if it could end up like causing even one person's life, let alone like multiple people, if you're talking about some place where people are supposed to be living in. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. It's always ways to skin a cat, but you don't do that on stuff like this. It's so important. Jasmine's not going to like hearing about skinning cats. I'm sorry. Oops. I'm sorry, Dre. Don't take don't take offense. It was a bad choice of words, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. There are a lot of ways around and to do and not do certain things. Yeah. Okay. Let me retract that statement. But this is not one of them that we should be so flaky on. No. For for the Mm -hmm. safety of people and just to make sure that everybody, yeah, literally is safe. Yeah. Oh man. All right, yep. well, interesting story. Watch out when you're looking up out there in New York mm-hmm. City. You never know what can happen. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, thank you so much for that story, Emily. Yeah. We are going to go go ahead and hop into our first music break. Um, today's music definitely is dedicated to Juneteenth. Why not? Really cool holiday to play music for. So in the spirit of that, the first track is from James Brown. This is I'm Black and I'm Proud. We'll be right back. Yeah. 
You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And our national news story comes from an article on CNN.com. The author of the article is Chris Boyette, Michelle Watson, and Elizabeth Wolf. The title of the article is Floor Sealant Served to Students Instead of Milk Was Mistakenly Stored in a Food Warehouse, Alaskan School District Says. An investigation into how 12 elementary school students in Janu, Alaska, were served floor sealant instead of milk at a child care program was revealed, has revealed that the chemical was mistakenly stored in a food warehouse, school district officials said. In the spring of 2021, one pallet of floor sealant was erroneously delivered as part of a shelf-stable milk shipment to a warehouse that is used to store food for the Janu School District and the district said, the district said in their last update. The floor sealant was later served to a group of students at a rally summer camp care program held at Sitang Shinox Glacier Valley Elementary School as a part of a children's breakfast. Soon after, the students began complaining that the milk they were served tasted bad and was burning their throats and mouths. The investigation found that the outside contractor responsible for making student breakfast ran out of milk and sent the staff to the warehouse to get more. Three boxes of sealant were retrieved, one of which was brought back to the school. In all, the district said 12 children and two adults drank the chemical, believing it was milk. After the children complained, staff immediately smelled and tasted the milk and looked at the container labels and quickly found that the children had been given slightly scented liquid floor sealant resembling milk. 
Once rally staff and workers from the outside contractor Nana Management Services realized the mistake, a rally site manager contacted Poison Control. After parents were notified, some students were taken to a nearby hospital or their medical provider, adding that some students also experienced headaches and nausea along with a burning in their mouths and throats. As of Wednesday evening, the district said all 12 students were recovering and some have fully recovered. Two of the other floor ceiling boxes retrieved at the warehouse were delivered to two other schools where they remained unopened, the district said. The Genoa School District Board of Education was appalled to learn of the food service error that occurred earlier this week, the statement said. Our immediate priority is with the students impacted by the incident and ensuring their recovery and continued safety. The board is working to understand how this occurred and ensure we have proper safeguards in place that prevent this kind of error from happening ever again. Investigations into the incident are still ongoing and involve participation by the school district, city, and borough of Janu, NMS, Alaska's Department of Environmental Conservation, and the Janu Police Department. The school district said it has been in contact with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, Department of Education and Early Development, Department of Labor, and the Department of Health and Social Services. What is the school doing in response? All sealant in the school has been accounted for and stored away from food service areas, the school district said, and the food storage warehouse has been inspected to ensure it now contains only food items. On Wednesday, the facility and operations were inspected by the State of Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation, Food Safety and Sanitation Office. DEC Food Safety approved the facility for continued operations. DEC is also conducting an investigation and is expected to follow up with recommendations. The district is also preparing to submit a corrective action plan to the DEC. The school also said that there was a delay in notifying parents after the mistake was discovered, which has led them to evaluate the program's communication protocols for quicker alerts. There was a delay in parent notification, which was longer than it should have been. This caused families to learn about the situation from other people, which is not the best practice, the district said in a statement. The Genoa School District Board of Education will hold a special public meeting on Friday, which representatives of NMS will attend. So that's the story. Um, this is pretty unfortunate for so many people, but um, this is an area of sensitivity for me because one of my students um, at my previous job, his son um, actually passed away because of a cheese allergen that they did not notify uh, or didn't track with his uh, food service. And he had an allergic reaction and he did not live to tell about it. And he has done a lot of work to um, pass a bill called Elijah's Law in New York um, that is about food allergens for children and how all schools must update their policies and make sure that um, food service workers and teachers and everybody is able to understand the actual severity of allergies that children have to all type of dietary. And in this case, this, I mean, this is not even a dietary function. This is just a mishandling um, of materials. But, you know, I thought this story was important because it's just, you know, a lot of people depend on free, free lunch, free breakfast. Those programs were designed to help uh, students from low income families and, and, you know, families who don't necessarily have the means um, or time, you know, to provide for their children. And now stuff like this, the fact that stuff like this can happen and be so widespread, I mean, we're lucky that there is no casualties in this situation, but it is very scary for parents.
Yeah, that's super scary. I am, um, you know, it's, it's so interesting. I don't think we talk about enough in this country, like how much trust we put into food service providers. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like there's so much that can go wrong front to back, right? Like it could be an allergy that's not taken care of. It could be contamination. It could be something like this, which is, I mean, this is like, feels like pretty extreme. Um, like, so again, like how can you say again? So it was delivered, like it was like a warehouse error or was it a storage error? It seems like it was from the warehouse. Let me go back just a little bit to see exactly how it got there. Um, Let me just read this again. Okay. In the spring of 2021, one pallet of floor sealant was erroneously delivered as part of a shelf-stable milk shipment to a warehouse Mm. that is used to store food for the school district. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it was a shipping area. area, um, And maybe they just loaded up and took it to the school and just didn't pay any attention. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, like, what did the boxes look like? Like, Did they look like their traditional milk boxes? and I know when I was a kid, the the milk used to just be stored in this little thing and you just grabbed whichever one you wanted, chocolate or, you know, regular. Mm-hmm. Nobody was really handing out milk to me. Yeah. I remember retrieving it myself. So that's another yeah. issue. I mean, it also sounds like, I mean, I don't know how calm, I mean, there should be roadblock like plenty of blocks to keep something from this from happening like even for example if the wrong thing gets delivered like the labeling should be so obvious and clear that this is not something ingestible right like yeah absolutely yeah yeah that's and, very strange mm-hmm. and then the second part the delay in telling the parents I would you know I would oh, take yeah. my kid out of the school for something like this you know how long was the delay again they just said it was a couple of hours. Be, um, oh, they yeah. weren't very specific, but you know the reality is it was twelve students and two adults um, mm-hmm. that it ingested this, and it, it's mm. just really scary. Two adults, also. Yeah, twelve wow. children and two adults. Wow. So what? What were they doing? Just letting the students get sick, and then after they realized, mm. you know, mm-hmm. it was seri- more serious, just going to the school nurse. They called the parents. Um. Yeah, Very I would be strange. freaked out. You know, my mother, t- I always took lunch to school because I just had a really finicky diet as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but every once in a while, you know, I would go grab a milk or go grab a dessert or something like that. And I would just be super hyper vigilant about taking care of my child after this, just, mm-hmm. you know, sending them to eat anything at the school. Because that I'm glad there's an investigation further going into it because it's like, mm-hmm. who, it was so it was so many hands that could have maybe caught this yeah. before it got to the students. Yeah, I saw something about the story a few days ago, and I, you know, I, I have to say, like my initial reaction or my first thought was to think that someone may have done this deliberately for some reason, because it just seemed like such a weird thing. And I also, you know, I think Emily is the one who said it. Like, why isn't something like that very clearly labeled? that it's not fit for human consumption or like poison it's something like very clear and obvious especially knowing that this is going into an area where there are children like children that maybe you know might reach for something not really knowing or not really able to read but at least the adults in the area would know enough that you know hey this needs to be completely separated out but Reese, from everything you were reading, it it just sounds like it was 
a matter of carelessness, which is a whole other level of problems in and of itself. I see with the Associated Press, um, just within the last 24 hours, they wrote that there has been an investigation into what had happened, and it looks like um, they said that the boxes were marked with a label that said SEAL 341. According to the school district statement, a worker with a contractor took the box of floor sealant and poured its contents into cups to be served at breakfast, which this to me is so like, how did that happen? Like, didn't it smell bad? Did it look like milk? Because it's not even like it was in like little containers and the children just opened them up and started drinking it like someone had to go through several steps where they they just weren't paying attention because i it had a seal on it that said that if this is from 2021 like normally milk will have some kind of like expiration date something so that clearly wasn't visible you're pouring it out and you see what it looks like you probably can smell what it smells like and it still didn't click that this wasn't regular milk i don't know i'm just like you both said i'm grateful that the children are recovering but this is really someone could have died like this could have ended very badly yeah i mean there's just so much terrible like it's being a kid in school is like just very scary today in the u.s these days like on so many levels you know yeah. And to add and this have- to these parents' worries, like, is it's a very upsetting, you know? Yeah. Come on, get it together, Alaska. We don't have, oh, we gosh, don't hear a lot wherever. Of, yeah. Or wherever. Yeah. We don't yeah. hear a lot of stories come up out of that region of the country, but uh, definitely important, you know, just yeah. checking in, holding the schools accountable as yeah. well. Like, make sure you go to these conferences and you meet these teachers. And, mm-hmm. you know, just like it should be a partnership. It shouldn't be a whole, I'm just going to drop you mm-hmm. off and let you get educated, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know it's also hard, like, you know, depending on the parent, they don't have time. Like mm-hmm. if they have a certain number of jobs or something like that to like be super involved, but I don't know. I mean, I, I just, it's just, it's just so bizarre. And they, like, it sounds like it's an ongoing investigation into how it happened. Is yeah. that, or like, yeah, because like, yeah. how, how, like, are these just unlabeled like white bags of liquid? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like that, that part is still like it, that like is so bizarre to me yeah and just sad and just really sad and i'm glad i mean i'm glad the kids are all recovering um yeah. you know had, had there been a fatality this would be a whole oh my story, gosh yeah. god forbid yeah and just like for my own like out of curiosity i looked up what floor ceiling even looks like because i'm not familiar and i do see images that looks like it's a white substance in a jug So I guess I could understand how, you know, if you're not looking closely, you might make that mistake. But, you know, like as understandable as it is that like there's human error and things that happen, like if you were the parent of a child that got sick this way or, if you know, God forbid they were to have gotten sick or like passed away or had a more severe reaction, I don't think you would be wanting to hear about honest mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, 
Sounds like it's time for a breather, y'all. Um, the next track is a throwback by one of my favorite musicians. This is Speak Low by Miss Billie Holiday. We'll be right back. Speak low when you speak love. I'll summer day withers away. Too soon, too soon. Speak low when you speak loud. Our moment is swift like ships adrift. We're swept apart. Everything is too soon, 
speak low to me, speak loud to me and soon. Speak low. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. If you're an Amazon shopper and would like to donate to Radio Free Brooklyn in a way that costs nothing to you, go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com forward slash Amazon and register FRB as your Amazon Smile charity. Every time you shop, a portion of your purchase benefits Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now Jasmine will give us our world news update. So for the world news story, I'm going to be talking about something that is impacting the Maasai people of Eastern Africa. Um, But before I get into reading the news articles, I'm going to read some information about who the Maasai are. And this comes from the MaasaiAssociation.org. The Maasai people of East Africa live in southern Kenya and northern Tanzania and northern Tanzania along the Great Rift Valley on semi-arid and arid lands. The Maasai are a semi-nomadic people who live under a communal land management system. The movement of livestock is based on seasonal rotation. Contrary to claims made by outsiders, particularly the Hardinian school of thought, the communal, this communal land management system allows the Maasai to utilize resources in a sustainable manner. Maasai society is comprised of 16 sections. Each section manages its own territory. Under normal conditions, reserve pastures are fallowed and guarded by the warriors. However, if the dry season becomes especially harsh, sections boundaries are ignored and people graze animals throughout the land until the rainy season arrives. According to Maasai traditional land agreement, no one should be denied access to natural resources such as water and land. Uh, So that's just uh, a little bit of background in case you are not familiar. And again, that was from www. Maasai-Association.org. And now to the current news story. So this information comes from The Guardian. I'm mostly reading from an article written by Katie McHugh and Matha Busby on June 14th, 2022. The title is Maasai Leaders Arrested in Protest Over Tanzanian Game Reserve. Ten Maasai leaders were detained and more than 30 people wounded during violent clashes with police in northern Tanzania on Friday as they protested against eviction from their land to make way for a luxury game reserve. One police officer was reportedly killed in the clashes and hundreds of people are in hiding after the protests in Loliondo, 
which borders Serengeti National Park. The protests began when police began to demarcate 1,500 square kilometers, which is 540 square miles of land to make way for the reserve to be operated by a United Arab Emirates owned company. The Maasai regard this land as their home. The leaders arrested last week have not been seen since they were detained. The NGO Pan-African Living Cultures Alliance said it plans to stage a mass protest on Wednesday, uh, which was this past Wednesday the 16th, unless they are released. One member of the Maasai community who declined to be named said at 6 a.m. on Friday, police fired many bullets at protesters. They destroyed our boda bodas or motorcycles took our cattle and properties had been destroyed. Very many women have been beaten. There were so many women there, I think they are using women as a weapon. He said security forces went from house to house arresting people. People are still being tracked by police, especially the educated, those with phones and evidence. Eight young men were taken away for putting photos on social media. We are under a lot of pressure. Those wounded in the clashes have reportedly had to cross over to Kenya to receive hospital treatment since state medical care is being refused to land defenders in Tanzania. Three people reportedly remain in a serious condition. A rights activist working with the Maasai who wished to remain anonymous said, Thousands of Maasai from Loliondo are crossing the border seeking refuge, especially women and kids. They've been sleeping in the forest. The victims can't go to hospital in Tanzania. They'll be arrested. Kenyan doctors, paramedics, and nurses are taking care of those who cross safely. Previous attempts to evict Maasai from the region have been thwarted after local and international pressure but fears of a renewed attempt were raised in February when Tanzania's tourism minister, Damas Ndumbaro, said the Maasai did not have a claim to their, their homeland. In April, community leaders sent letters to the UK and US governments and the EU appealing for help. Um, and in an earlier Guardian article also written by Katie McHugh in April, um, they wrote in more detail about that letter that had been sent to um, Western governments. In that article, um, Katie wrote the following. We have nowhere else to go, they wrote. Losing this land will mean the extinction of our community. Over 70% of our homelands has been taken for conservation and investment reasons. The government plans to evict Maasai in the Ngoro Ngoro Conservation Area, which is designated a World Heritage Site by UNESCO and Loliondo near the Serengeti National Park. Both are famous for luxury safari tourism. The Tanzanian government and UNESCO believe Ngoro Ngoro is overpopulated to the detriment of wildlife. The Maasai who have led a semi-nomadic pastoralist lifestyle for centuries, moving their cattle throughout the area as the seasons changed, have for years been subjected to violent campaigns to clear areas for tourism. 
and this is back to the most recent um, Guardian article. Earlier this month, the Ministry of Natural Resources and Tourism announced that it wanted to classify more areas as game reserves. The Tanzanian government has denied it is trying to evict anyone and said it was trying to conserve the area. It maintains Maasai will still have access to 2,500 square kilometers of land. But Dennis Moses Oleshangai, a Tanzanian human rights lawyer, said the government's actions were a crime against humanity and called on the international community to intervene. The government of Tanzania depends on aid from the West. I am asking countries not to fund Tanzania because it is using this money to terrorize people. Samuel Nigeria, a local Maasai community leader and the director of the Ngoro Ngoro NGO network agreed. The international community must hold our government to account, he said. This is brutal. They have used excessive force against Maasai who have lived alongside wildlife for a very long time. If this is not addressed, it will set a precedent and Maasai will be pushed off their land elsewhere. Malik Hassan Shafi, a spokesperson from the Tanzanian embassy in Washington, D.C., told The Guardian, the government has not burned any house nor attacked anyone in Loliando. We want to assure you that the government of the United Republic of Tanzania has never and will never hurt its own people it has sworn to protect. Those are propaganda instigated by people with malicious intent against the government. He said the exercise to mark off the area had been mutually agreed by the government and local people. Um, so yes, I hadn't um, heard much about this particular story. Um, I did see some videos on Twitter like of Maasai people being attacked. And even in the Guardian article uh, that I just read from, they have images of the land protectors that had been beaten that were, you know, very graphic images. And, you know, I didn't find anything that was very specific about ways that you could lend support to the Maasai in this time. Uh, I will share the article that has a link to the letter that had been signed by many different people in support of their cause, um, but that was several months ago. Um, but the story was, I think, is emblematic of, I think, a lot of issues that you see with... Um, outside governments or outside forces and, you know, capitalist interests, like trying to cordon off sections of this area so that very rich people can come to the Maasai's land and hunt for fun. Um, even the way that conservation, which, you know, most of us, I would think if you care about the planet, you care about, um, what's happening with climate change. You don't want to see certain types of animals to be um, hunted to the point of extinction, and that's understandable. But the other side of it, there are Western organizations that are behind conservation efforts that will, that can and will do things that are to the detriment of local people and indigenous people who are able to live off of the land in a way that doesn't um, deplete the ground, like it's possible to live side by side with wildlife if you are following, you know, a lot of these indigenous ways. But 
it seems like what's happening now is you would end up with, you know, so many of these people who have this pastoral way of life being forced out, then being forced into what, like crowded urban centers or being dependent on like Western aid in order for them to live instead of being able to continue their way of life. Like it just sounds like a disaster. And I agree with the activist that was quoted in the article that it does seem to be a very, very dangerous precedent to set that it's okay to do these types of things, um, you know, for the sake of increased tourism, uh, which is another thing I, I don't think some individuals realize, or not just individuals, I just, I don't think a lot of people understand that what you might see as harmless or you might honestly think is helping the people um, by going to visit certain places in reality, like you don't know what has gone into clearing an area and forcing people off of it, changing people's whole ways of life that they've had for hundreds or sometimes thousands of years so that that area is kept quote unquote pristine and conserved for the sake of like the consumption of Westerners, you know? So like with a lot of things that might on the surface or the way that they're promoted, it might not seem like it's harmful. Once you scratch that surface and you really look at it, you realize that, you know, there's often some very um, selfish and racist like forces at play. Thank you so much for that story, Jasmine. And next up, Emily, can you please give us the good news? Alrighty, I would be happy to. So this story comes from a June 8th article in The Guardian by Lisa Cox, titled Scientists Report Heartening 30% Reduction in Plastic Pollution on Australia's Coast. CSIRO researchers say efforts to raise public awareness have quickly led to improvements in the environment. The article explains, quote, The amount of plastic pollution on Australia's coast has decreased by up to 30% on average as a result of work by local governments to reduce litter, according to research by Australia's science agency. Scientists from CSIRO surveyed 183 coastal sites in six Australian states for plastic and other litter, such as glass, in 2018 to 2019. 32 of the locations studied had also been surveyed at the same time of year in 2012 to to 13, and those results were compared to the 2018 to 19 findings. In what the CSIRO researcher and one of the paper's co-authors, Denise Hardesty, describes as a heartening sign of change, there was an average decline in pollution, most of which is from plastics, across the sites of 29%. Some individual locations showed larger improvements, the greatest being a 73% decline in the amount of litter recorded. It's an amazing testimony of how much can change and how quickly you can see that change in the environment, Hardesty said. Almost 30% in six years is really heartening and can help people understand the impacts of our behaviors. Quote, the lead researcher, researcher Catherine Willis, said the scientists were surprised to see such a large drop in the amount and the average amount of litter since the original surveys back in 2012 to 13. While plastic pollution is still a global crisis and we still have a long way to go, this research shows that decisions made on the ground at local management levels are crucial for the successful reduction of coastal plastic pollution, Willis said. Jeff Angel, the director of the Boomerang Alliance, said the results showed municipal waste management was a useful strategy that should continue to be supported. 
He added that the new policies introduced around Australia since 2019, such as single-use plastic bans and the expansion of container deposit schemes, would probably deliver even larger benefits. These are showing very large reductions in litter volume and items and will deliver big benefits to the environment as they continue to be rolled out, he said. Uh, yeah, and that's the good news of the week. I always like to hear stories about, you know, it's it's fun to hear stories about all the moves people are taking, but it's, it's I think, also important to see how the results, the positive results of those actions over time, too. Uh, yeah. Awesome. That was a great story. I love to hear when we're doing something right, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and okay, also, like, when, when you know, when um, the efforts of people who care about the things that are important are recognized and it actually ch- shifts the tide and moves the conversation as well as uh, the results forward. I think it's really important. So, definitely. Thank you so much for that wonderful story. Yeah. And we made it, y'all. That's it. it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Objection to the Rule. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Keep listening for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track of the day is Black Parade by Beyonce. Have a wonderful weekend, y'all. See you next time. Bye. I'm going back to the south. I'm going back, 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 back. When my roots ain't watered down. Growing, growing like a baobab tree. All life on for the ground. My ancestor put me on game. On charm, on gold chains. With my old shoon in a jail. Drip all on me. I'm gonna do shit, keep playing. Hold up, you're not. Smell like such a non-trapping. Chit chat and sisters on the wall, let the ghost chit chat and sisters.
need another march, let me call Tamika. Need peace and reparation for my people. Woo. Fuck these ladies, I'ma let it shrivel up. Shrivel up. Fuck these fading ways, I'ma let it dread all up. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.